Thank you, Stephen. Well, we are going to start today's message a little bit differently. We are going to start with a video because I thought that I could explain this, but then I realised there was a YouTube video that just did it so much better. So let's watch the first two minutes of that. In the late 17th century, a medical student named Johannes Hofer noticed a strange illness affecting Swiss mercenaries serving abroad. Its symptoms, including fatigue, insomnia, irregular heartbeat, indigestion, and fever, were so strong the soldiers often had to be discharged. As Hofer discovered, the cause was not some physical disturbance, but an intense yearning for their mountain homeland. He dubbed the condition nostalgia, from the Greek nostos for homecoming and algos for pain or longing. At first, nostalgia was considered a particularly Swiss affliction. Some doctors proposed that the constant sound of cowbells in the Alps caused trauma to the eardrums and brain. Commanders even forbade their soldiers from singing traditional Swiss songs for fear that they'd lead to desertion or suicide. But as migration increased worldwide, nostalgia was observed in various groups. It turned out that anyone separated from their native place for a long time was vulnerable to nostalgia. And by the early 20th century, professionals no longer viewed it as a neurological disease, but as a mental condition similar to depression. Psychologists of the time speculated that it represented difficulties letting go of childhood, or even a longing to return to one's fetal state. But over the next few decades, the understanding of nostalgia changed in two important ways. Its meaning expanded from indicating homesickness to a general longing for the past. And rather than an awful disease, it began to be seen as a poignant and pleasant experience. Perhaps the most famous example of this was captured by French author Marcel Proust. He described how tasting a Madeleine cake he had not eaten since childhood triggered a cascade of warm and powerful sensory associations. Well, that video goes for about double the time and you can watch that and I'll put it online on the website for you if you'd like. Now, nostalgia is a very, very common experience, but we know that it's not always bad. While the video tells us that uh, it was first discovered in the 17th century, I think we know that nostalgia has been part of the human experience for a lot longer than that, for as long as humans have existed. And today's reading, I think, is all about nostalgia. And let's look at why. Well, last Sunday, we explored how the returned exiles from Babylon were encouraged by God through the prophet Haggai to rebuild the temple or to rebuild God's house. And today's reading is set one month or maybe about five weeks um, after last week's reading. And so they're in the midst of this renovation building project together. They are building this new temple and they're building it about 60 to 70 years. So there's the same graph I used last week, but without the prophet's names. They're rebuilding it about 60 to 70 years after Solomon's grand temple was destroyed. And that means that about in these times, two to three generations have passed. So it's likely that none of uh, the hearers of Haggai or none of the people that Haggai is speaking to had actually seen Solomon's temple. 
They'd only heard stories of how wonderful it really was. So they can't remember what it looked like, but there's almost this sense of disappointment because the new thing that they are building doesn't live up to the last temple at all. They have a sense of nostalgia given to them by their grandparents over how great this last temple was. Now it's important to remember that in this previous chapter from last week, we were told how the exiled people had returned to Jerusalem and things were hard. Remember they mentioned the crops they weren't taking, their money just didn't seem to be going very far. And there was a sense of hardship amongst the people. Things are not as they had hoped or expected them to be. And I'd like us to think then about what their life was like when they were in exile. The experience before they returned to Jerusalem. They were there for two or three generations and it actually wasn't completely terrible. It wasn't like when they were in Egypt, in exile as slaves. In Babylon, in the Babylonian exile, they had some sense of freedom, but they weren't in their homeland. And so for those generations, they were able to make a life and a home for themselves in these conditions in Babylon. And we know this because the prophet Jeremiah, who is speaking in the time of the Babylonian exile, says this. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so they did just that. In exile, they made a life for themselves. All the while, their parents and their grandparents are telling them these stories about the glorious homeland in Jerusalem. So they, they develop this sort of national nostalgia for it. And then they have this hope to return. And so then they get there, they're excited. And there's this sense of, oh my goodness, in rubble. It's in rubble, is, is this it? Is this what we had hoped for and dreamed of for generations? Now I know many in our fellowship have come to Australia from other countries and they've made Australia their home. And if that's you, I wonder what stories you tell yourself about your homeland and your home countries. And I wonder, have you ever been back and things were not quite as you expected? Have you ever experienced disappointment to realize that things were not quite the same or as not as you were hoped for? Now, I haven't lived overseas myself. Um, I did for six months, but not enough to really experience nostalgia for, you know, Australia. But I do remember a feeling of nostalgia in a slightly different context. 
As a child, we used to go away every year to this old scout camp on Phillip Island. It was no longer a scout camp. Instead, it was kind of this space that multiple families um, could hire out. So my family and five other families every year would rent out all the cabins and um, it was this massive great place with a big pool and this waterfall that I used to jump off and a hot tub and an awesome treehouse and games. It was like paradise for me as a kid. So a couple of years ago when I was tasked with organizing a church camp, I thought, great, I know where we're going to go. This is going to be the perfect place to book. And I was so excited to revisit it as an adult. Well, it was a nice enough weekend, but I got to say it did not live up to my expectations. That massive waterfall that I used to jump off as a child actually was just this water feature. Um, yeah, lacked some of the excitement. Um, and the health and safety uh, sort of expectations had uh, come a long way since I was eight, and so that uh, treehouse was decommissioned. Uh, and as a child, I'd gone in summer, so I hadn't noticed that the, the, heat, the property didn't have heating, uh, which I really noticed in, in July. Uh, and as a kid, I was never the one driving, obviously, because that was illegal. And so I'd never noticed the bumper-to-bumper traffic that it takes to get to Phillip Island on a Friday night after work. So it was fine, this, this church camp, but it wasn't this perfect holiday that I had remembered and built up in my mind or hoped for. And I think the exact same can be said for the returned exiles in Haggai. Jerusalem was not the wonderland that they had hoped for. It was not the promised land that their grandparents told beautiful, nostalgic stories of. Now, we remember that Haggai is especially interested in building God's house and in this building project that they are taking on to rebuild the temple. And it's this building that they find very disappointing as they reminisce about the grandeur of Solomon's temple in comparison to the one that they are working on. So I expected that maybe this was a smaller temple or not as grand. So I did a little bit of historical research on the temple they were building. And what I found out was actually, physically, dimension-wise, it's pretty similar to Solomon's temple. However, it was probably without some of the more extravagant finishes. But I think the more research I did, the real uh, point of difference between these two temples is that in the time, Solomon's temple was a central a symbol of kingdom and empire. The temple had power, not just God's power, but power in the world. Whereas this new temple that they were building, they knew that it would have God's power and glory because God had promised that, but that it was not gonna carry the same sense of worldly power that Solomon's did, because in Solomon's time, they were part of the kingdom, you know, the, the kingdom that David had started in the kingdom period, whereas now they're under a new empire. Now, we established last week that in the 20th century version and reading of this, God's house or the temple is the church, not, not the building, not this building, but the communal life of Christ's followers where the spirit of God dwells. 
And Haggai encouraged us to prioritise building that communal life, to focus on building the church and God's house. So today's reading warns us about nostalgia in our communal life. And in the church, I think we have this sense of nostalgia, especially as we remember back to the boom years of the 1950s. It was post-war when people flocked back to the church and the pews were full and the Sunday schools, and some of you might have been in those Sunday schools, were cascading out of the halls. And I'm not saying that that is a bad thing. I think that was a wonderful, wonderful period in the church. And in the same way, Solomon's temple held a worldly standing and power in the past that the Australian church did too. In the 1950s, 44% of Australians reported regular church attendance. Now that's more like 16%. Now, many things have contributed to that decline, and that's not really what this sermon is for today, but if you want to have a chat about that, it's an interest area for me, so grab me as we're having a cup of tea. But it's not just in Australia. We see this decline across the Western church and the Western world. But as you would expect, the decline in regular participation in the communal life has also meant that church in Australia no longer holds the standing the influence and the power that it once did over the collective Australian life. And therefore, I believe we are more like the people in Haggai than we think we sometimes are. And as we reflect on this reading, it has some really important implications for us. As we reminisce, there is a bit of a narrative of, well, if we could just get back to how it was, if we could get back to that, then we would be okay. If we could return to that, then the church would have real impact again. If we could return to that way, as it was in the past, the church and society at large would be good, would be healthy, and would be flourishing. But here's what today's reading is telling us, and it kind of feels harsh. Well, we can't go back. We don't have a time machine. We can only go forward. And today's reading tells us that forward looks pretty good too. It's going to be very different to the past, but it promises to be full of God's glory. So let's read the final four verses of today's reading together now as God encourages his people who are waiting and wanting to look back. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, oh, we're actually reading it together. I didn't mean that, but let's do it. Okay. <laughs> you guys take it very practically. Um, in a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. 
and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Thank you, that was a little bit spirit inspired. <laughs> well, here's what these four verses show us. That this new house that they are building, while it looks different, while it seems less spectacular than Solomon's temple, it's going to have more glory than that previous one. Sure, it might not have all the worldly glory and power that Solomon's temple had during those kingdom periods of their history, but it's actually going to be more spectacular. It's actually going to be more glorious. Why? Well, because of God. Because God is going to place the glory there. And in this new temple, God will grant peace. And in God's temple here and now, in our communal life as a church, God promises the exact same thing. Now, as I speak to other Christians and other pastors, and as I spent the day with them on Friday, I heard stories of lots of churches, and I think it's similar to ours, that have felt like a lot of people have not come back after COVID, and that many parts of our life are harder after the pandemic. But in Haggai, we get a promise. While it's not about going back and recreating the same thing as we used to have, God's future is going to look different for us. But we're promised the future of this house, the future of our life together, will have glory. And that's a theme we see throughout scripture, that the future is not what we expect, but it is much, much better. I think Jesus was the most unexpected part of history and of scripture. That other than a couple of prophets, no one expected that the Messiah would come as this tiny little baby. Nobody expected that the enthronement, his enthronement as king would actually look like sacrifice on a cross. Nobody expected that God's gifts of the spirit would be freely poured out and given to each of us. And certainly it was unexpected when God said that he would invite us all into the hope of this coming kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So there is an element of today that is we need to stop trying to go back. And instead, we need to have kingdom expectations for the future to hear God's promise, to fill the church with God's presence, glory and peace, and to expect that through Christ we are going to see transformation beyond our wildest dreams and it might not look like we had planned. However, like I said in last week's sermon, the transformation of a life or a church community is simply not a matter of us sitting back and waiting for God to sprinkle some lovely spiritual pixie dust on us. It's a matter of setting to work in pursuit of obedience to God's commands. In Haggai chapter 2 verse 4, it says, To be strong and work 
because God is with us. And you might have seen in this week's newsletter, Calvin reflected on this passage and he really ran with the work element of things. So what is the command that we need to be obedient to? Well, we're told that our greatest command is to love God and to love our neighbours. So yes, the landscape of the church has shifted and is shifting. The landscape of our country is shifting and so is the landscape of our neighbourhoods. And to be an effective witness and to be effective in our communal life as followers we might need to be strong and we might need to do some work and we might need to shift a little bit too. And that does not mean abandoning the central beliefs of our faith, but it does mean looking at all the stuff on the edges and thinking about where do we need to be a little bit flexible. For example, as our neighbourhood is becoming more linguistically and culturally diverse, what does that mean for how we engage in communal life and worship here at BMBC? And as more young people shift away from the church, and I know in this congregation, something I've heard time and time again after joining you, is that while now Sunday mornings have become sports time for families, how do we respond? How do we respond in a way that doesn't see kids and families excluded from our communal life? I mean, there's that temptation to cross our arms disapprovingly and say, well, we're the church. We've dibbed Sunday mornings first. And that's the only service that we can and will hold or attend. So we just expect all the sporting clubs to change their training times and their game times. And I would love that to happen, but honestly, I think that's a battle that we might just lose. Because we know, and Deb talked about this last week when she talked about sports chaplaincy, that almost 12.8 million Australians, that's almost 50% of Australians, are involved in a sporting club each year. Remember, our church attendance is at 16%. Now, I am not suggesting that we chuck in a Sunday service. I'm just using this as a bit of an example of how God is inviting us to look forward. I'm suggesting that we need to use that creativity and that imagination that God has given us as we ask God what it is that we do with our communal life. So sure, we can look back and we can learn from the past and that's a really important thing to do. But please, let's remind ourselves in our individual life and as our communal life, not to let nostalgia trap us in the past. Because we know when we look to the future, God is in control of it. God has a plan. And God promises that it will be full of glory. And I want to remind us, if we are tempted to look back as we do, don't only look back as far as the glory days of your life or the glory days of the church. Look much further back in time. Look back about 2,000 years to the cross where Jesus died for us. 
so that we could have his eternal hope and that we could share that with our world. Look to the cross where Christ made it possible for God to dwell in our communal lives. If you're going to look back, make sure it's to the cross. Because when we look at the cross, we are reminded that God does mighty and unexpected things far beyond our imagination. And we are reminded to have those same big kingdom expectations of the future. Let's pray together. Loving God, we admit that sometimes we limit the expectations that we have for our lives and our futures and our church to what we can comprehend and to what we can think up. But we ask that your spirit would renew us, that it would remind us that your glory is with us and promised that you would guide us in your ways to have these big expectations of the things that you can do in the world that are so beyond what we can do alone. Remind us of Jesus. Remind us to come close to you, to let you guide us and help us as we make decisions about our communal life together, as we seek to follow, to serve and to worship you now and all the days of our lives. Amen.